Welcome back. I hope y'all had a good Christmas holiday and um, hope it was at least restful in part. And uh, I've been looking forward to getting back to our psalm study. Before we stopped or, or had our break for the holiday, we started in psalms and we covered the first two lessons and then we'll have two more, um, this one and next week. So total of four in psalms, it's the longest book of the Bible, it makes good sense. Um, and so we'll, we'll be continuing in that tonight. Um, before I pray, I want to give you a brief explanation on what we'll be doing this year. This year um, is a sabbatical year for me. So in September, October, November, I'll be on sabbatical. So we're looking at summer and um, doing some things on Sunday morning, but then on those months, um, potentially using Wednesday nights to focus on some things like marriage, uh, finances, um, and a number of other sort of practical uh, life application things such as that. And then we may um, uh, possibly do some of those things on Sunday evenings as well. So the elders discussed it last night. We're looking to put some things on the schedule, and we'll be letting y'all know all that as soon as possible. But up until then, we'll continue on. So for at least the next eight weeks, we'll be two-week psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and our uh, wisdom literature. So let's pray, and then we'll get to it. Lord, we come to you now. We thank you uh, for this day. Um, we thank you for the opportunity to come back together and study your word and to uh, be able to gather here and not have to whisper, to be able to gather here and have the word in front of us, to be able to open it and upon reading it to have understanding because the, the Holy Spirit is, is moving and doing things that we can't do on our own. And so because of that, uh, tonight we humble ourselves before you. And we ask that you would use this time as you see fit. We ask that you would um, allow us in our discussion and in our uh, engagement of the text to, re to really glorify you as we grow in Christ's likeness. Lord, I pray um, as we have, uh, as we've prayed a number of times in the past, we continue to pray this for our upcoming times in the word is that the, the true transformation would take place by the renewal of our minds that as we come to a better understanding of things in the Word and as we um, renew our minds, as we um, press ourselves to, to gain knowledge and to gain understanding, that that, that would lead to, to real transformation, to real Christ-likeness, and that that would allow us to be bright and to be salty and to be a good witness to you and to your kingdom here on earth. Lord, we pray that our time in Psalms is is fruitful in the next couple of weeks. We also pray, Lord, uh, tonight for uh, Christian Hass as she continues to recover. We pray for, um, uh, as, as it's been a better day, it seems like, um, uh, as far as eating and talking and everything else, uh, that, that that recovery would continue and that as she goes into um, some of the, the rehabilitation in the coming week, that it, that it would be really fruitful. We uh, pray also, continue to pray for Amelia, um, Amelia Thornton, and pray that you would allow them to return home soon. And we also pray for the Hucks as they're uh, en route and on the way here. So lo lots of moving parts, and we're thankful that you're a God who tends to all the details in a far greater way than we ever could, even on our best day. Uh, we love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, turn to Psalms. And uh, because it's such a huge book, um, we're not really going chapter by chapter. When we started this study, we started in Genesis, and we took a few years to get through Genesis. And then we went to Exodus, and we took a few years to get to Exodus. And to be honest, I got to Leviticus, and I was like, I don't really want to spend that much time in Leviticus because it's, it's, it's hard, and there's, there's blood everywhere, and then, then there's more blood, and then there's more blood, and it's difficult. And so what we did was we looked at it, and we were like, I considered how we're moving in our Old Testament study and I think we had to go slow to get going through Genesis and Exodus and establish some foundational things, but now we're moving at a quicker pace. We're doing uh, what's called a survey, kind of a study, where we spend a couple weeks in each book. And so in Psalms, we're going to be continuing tonight, and our focus from the two weeks preceding the holiday uh, was on what the Psalms revealed to us about what it means to be truly spiritual according to God's Word. Who, who was here for those two studies, just so I have an idea of what we're working with? Oh, okay. Lots, lots of review. All right. Um, our focus was on what it means to be spiritual. And we started off with this question in those two weeks before of um, how, how, do we, how have you heard even culturally uh, defined what it means to be spiritual? And there's 
no lack of answers. There's a m- number of different ways that people could um, define spirituality or um, prove that they are, in fact, spiritual people. And what we're doing with the book of Psalms is allowing it to define for us the biblical characteristics of the, the truly, genuinely spiritual person according to God. And we know it's according to God because of 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God. And so that's the approach we're taking to give some reasonable form to this massive book is what are the spiritual characteristics of truly spiritual people according to God's word. I think one of the most profound truths are things that we engaged before the break that I want to note on as we step back into looking at these seven um, characteristics is that um, Mark Dever sort of captured it well by saying, uh, fundamental to any biblical spirituality is a real joy in God and who he has revealed himself to be. It is centered on God. So as we're talking about spirituality, before we go any further, what I want to make very clear is that we don't go on this journey to find God, the spiritual journey. Some people you know, try to do different things to find God or to find what it means to be truly spiritual. But for us, as we're engaging the Psalms, what we have realized in our first two studies is that it's on centering on God that we find true spirituality. It's sort of like, you know, you can't, a dead branch can't really bear fruit. You can't say, okay, well, let's bear fruit to prove that the branch is alive. No, the branch has to come to life and then it'll bear fruit. And so for us, true spirituality isn't we do these things and we find God. It's we center on God. We look at God. We consider God. We consider what he's done, how he's moving. And in that and how we respond to that, we'll find what it means to be truly spiritual people. And not just for the sake of being spiritual, but for the sake of glorifying God and witnessing to others his goodness, because that's our created purpose. So centering on God is how we find true spirituality. So when we do that, we find true spirituality manifest in our lives in the following characteristics. There's seven things, and I'll list them. I'd encourage you to write them down, and we'll uh, review the ones we've already covered, and then we'll move on to the next ones. We've actually covered five of the seven. The first one is praise giving. The second is honesty. Third is remembering. Fourth is moral, morality. Fifth is changing. Sixth is trusting. And seven is thanksgiving. It would have been truly poetic if I could have gotten to the point on Thanksgiving right before we went on Thanksgiving break, but we didn't do that. So, so we're going to pick it up in January and hope that we can also be thankful in January as well as November and December. Praise giving was the first one. And I, for those of you who were here, we'll, we'll see, see how the memories are. What were the two reasons that we discussed last year, 2013, about why we praise God? There were two things that we considered on truly spiritual person is a, is a praise-giving person. And what were the two things that we saw that were the reasons that spiritual people praise God? Who he is, yes, and what he's done, exactly. And we got to make sure those are always together because if we find ourselves only praising him for what he's done, we're not really enjoying who he is, and we're sort of going to him as sort of the, the, uh, the wish-granter almost. And as, as we enjoy who he is, we, we do that in large part by seeing what he's done and those things come together and we give him thanks. And we see the psalmist doing that over and over again, praising God for who he is and then recounting what he's done and praising him for that. The second was honesty. And we noted that one of the areas that we can see honesty pretty clearly is in the songs of lament. It's not limited to the songs of lament, but we can see those in the songs of lament, of which there are many. There are many psalms um, that are sort of a offering up of sorrow in an honest way. And so one of the questions that we asked that I want to ask in review is, what's the difference between honestly crying out to God in lament and complaining in discontentment? What's the difference between those two? Because they could both look like lament, but what's the difference between offering up an honest crying out about your pain and then complaining with discontentment. What, what's the difference between the two as far as honesty goes in our worship? Yep, trusting in his sovereignty, that what you're facing is not 
without reason or without purpose. It's not outside of his plan. Exactly. The first is God-centered. The second is self-centered. It is a God-centered thing to say, God, I'm coming to you with this pain or this heartache or this distraction or whatever I have, and I'm coming to you and I'm crying out. And the other is self-centered, just crying, you know, sort of maybe not even Godward, but just making sure everyone hears how frustrated you are, discontent you are in, in whatever the situation or circumstance might be. What else? What's the difference in what you expect from those two approaches? What are you expecting if you complain in discontentment? What do you, nothing. Yeah, nothing. What are you expecting in honestly crying out about your pain? Yeah, personal growth changed heart that God actually hears you and that he's actually going to do something about it. I think a lot of times we get entirely too cynical and pessimistic and we feel like things are going a particular way and we just say, well, it is what it is and nothing's going to happen, nothing's going to change. I don't like it. I'm never going to like it. I'm not happy. I'm never going to be happy with this. And the reality is that God has a very specific purpose in interceding in those things and changing your heart to where we can be the kind of people that are maybe sorrowful yet always rejoicing. It's not a matter of acting like things aren't hard, but it's an honesty that goes before him and says, God, I'm coming to you and I expect change. I hope for change. I hope that I'm actually transformed by the renewal of my mind as you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, make known to me your purposes or show me the light in this very horrible darkness. Show me that glimpse, that glimmer, even if it's in part, because I know it'll change the way that I am, which will ultimately glorify you. There's, there's an expectation of change that exists when you honestly pour your heart out to God, as opposed to just crying out in discontentment. And we'll actually touch on that on another point here in just a little while. So the truly spiritual person knows the real joy of praising God. And the truly spiritual person knows the real anguish of crying out to him. That crying out, it's not this, okay, let me get all my stuff together and I'll cry out in a very formal way. A lot of times it's very much an anguish. It's, it's a pain. It's this utterance that comes forth when you're going through something difficult. And God cares about that. He cares about hearing from you in that because you need to hear from him in that circumstance. The third thing was remembering. And the Psalms about remembering, most of what Old Testament Jews would remember, the big high water mark that they would often look back to in the Psalms was the, the Exodus and so for us, as we're talking about remembering, those are the Psalms that we considered were probably the most distant to us. So what we considered in our worship is what were some of the um, things that we could do a better job of making sure to remember. That's what we discussed. And do y'all remember when we said, what are some things we could do a better job of remembering? And we thought, we talked about gotcha dates um, with, with uh, adoptions, when friendships first began, your first attendance, or when you join a new church home. Um, victory over a particular sin, uh, the dates that your children acknowledge Christ. The Puritans were, knowing, were known for sort of littering their calendars with dates of remembrance because they wanted to be wholehearted in their worship to say, I'm not going to allow time to pass without looking back and saying, God did this at this time and I will praise him for it. The fourth thing is morality. What does spirituality have to do with morality? What does spirituality have to do with being moral? Yeah, if your heart seeks to glorify God, then you will be obedient to his commandments. What else does morality have to do with spirituality? Yeah, there is blessing and obedience, absolutely. And it is very spiritual. What else? I'm aware it's a bit of a hard question. <clears throat> what happens if someone is deeply spiritual and not moral? What's the possible result there? 
Wait, say that again? It doesn't seem like they can coexist. Is that possible? And what'd you say over here? Someone said something over here. Yeah, the spirituality would have nothing to do with God. Exactly. What we started off with was this, this consideration that fundamental to any biblical spirituality is a real joy in God. And if there's no morality there, you, can, you may classify yourself as a deeply spiritual person, but it's all going to be about you. It's going to have nothing to do with God, and it's not going to be true spirituality as we know it. And the reason that I'm saying that we can take that term of spirituality and sort of capture it and say, and sort of lay um, dominion over it is because our creator created it. Our creator will define what true spirituality is. So while the world and the culture will say, oh, this is this very spiritual occurrence or this was a very spiritual experience, if it has nothing to do with God, if it's immoral, it's not truly spiritual. It may be some sort of experience of emotion, but it is not truly spiritual according to the one who created us and created our spirit. So the entire book of Psalms begins with the choice that every human has to make, a choice between wickedness and a choice between um, righteousness. And what we see in the Psalms over and over again that we talked about in those first two weeks is that God's wisdom should always inform every decision and every choice. We don't compartmentalize certain things where we take God's wisdom and apply it to this, but not to this. We don't apply it to finances, but not to marriage. We don't apply it to friendships, but not to parenting. We don't compartmentalize that. All of God's wisdom that he gives us should apply to every decision that we make in every area of our lives which leads to the fifth thing, which is changing. And this is actually where we left off when we uh, ended the, the last semester and where we're going to pick back up. We hear the psalmist's desire for change, particularly in psalms of penitence. And there are seven of them. And, it, and each one can really um, can be used as a resource and an aid for repentance and change. If you have an area of your life where you know there needs to be change and there needs to be repentance, there needs to be a confession of that thing as sin and acknowledgement and a turning from it. Sometimes it's not just that easy. Sometimes that thing holds to you sort of tightly and that thing sort of wants to drag you down. And so in those times, these Psalms of penitence are good resources to say, okay, God, I cannot stop struggling with this particular thing. And I've tried to put it to death and I'm struggling. And I've tried to let it not be a part of my life, and I'm struggling. And I've tried to turn from it, but I'm struggling. And these psalms help to bring about the kind of change that God actually desires in the lives of his children. Because the struggle against sin is very real. If anyone sitting here thinks that the struggle against sin is a light thing, just ask your neighbor, and they'll probably tell you different. Um, the struggle with sin is very weighty, very heavy sometimes. And these psalms can be very helpful in putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Um, Augustine or Augustine or however you want to say his name, depends on what emphasis you put on what syllable. Um, he found much change uh, needed in his life following his conversion. So um, at the point of conversion, when, when one turns from their life of sin and they embrace a life um, in Christ, um, it's not always like that. I don't know if y'all have experienced that. It's not always this sort of flip of the switch turn things over and, oh man, that's so great. Now that I have Jesus, I never struggle with anything ever again. Some people would, um, what's a good light, foist that upon you as, um, as true and, it's, and it's, it's a total farce. Upon acknowledging Christ and upon acknowledging our condition, there's much change that's needed. And that change doesn't always come about easily. And so um, Augustine found after his conversion that he needed a lot of change in his life and that was going to take work and it was going to take help from the scriptures and help from his community. And his favorite Psalm uh, was Psalm 32. So go ahead and turn there. We're talking about truly spiritual people being people that are changing. And Psalm 32 was uh, one that helped him to know how to approach God about the change he knew, um, the changes that he, he knew were needed in his life. Sometimes we, we have this skewed view where it's like, I can't approach God until I change the things that I need to change because there'll be shame, he won't accept me. Um, he calls you to a life of holiness, but there's a way of approaching him because remember, it was in your sin while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it wasn't that we got our stuff cleaned up and we went to him. It was that he met us in our sin. That's that grace. That's that mercy, giving us what we don't deserve and not giving us what we do deserve. And him 
condescending and coming down and helping us. And so there's a way for us to approach him when we're struggling and when we're needing change. And Psalm 32 is helpful for that. So let's read it aloud. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Remember, this is, picture um, Augustine, um, picture him sitting in his study, reading Psalm 32, trying to figure out how do I go before God with the change that I need in my life. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I mean, just... Have you experienced God in that way? Feeling this, this covering when you approach him? Because that's the way God allows us to experience him. As I, I mean, I'm, as I prepared for this and studied Psalm 32, I thought, man, I, not near often enough does the time come that I sit and just honestly confess my transgressions to the Lord, eager to enjoy that covering and that presence, and that reality that exists only in him. It doesn't exist anywhere else. Verse 6 says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great, of great waters they shall not reach him. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all of you upright in heart. A Christian faith that does not bring change is false faith even if it's surrounded with a lot of emotion. That's one of the way that Mark Devers tries to capture that, is that if you, if you say it's a Christian faith and it doesn't bring any change, it's false. It's not real. It's, it's make-believe. No matter how much emotion goes with it, there are many, many people who have proclaimed to begin a journey in a very emotional way, and no change has come after that. And that's not faith. That's false. We, we shouldn't ever believe that. We should never be okay with that. It's okay for us as brothers and sisters to be even upset with one another in a very humble, helpful way when we don't see change that's needed. That's how we push one another. That's how we hold one another accountable to the word. If, if there's someone who's struggling with something and there's no change happening, it's okay to deeply desire that change for that person and to, to let them see the, the sorrow that it causes because we should want change. Even if it's in your own life, that should be the case. We should care about changing because if, if we say we have faith and there's no changing, it's, it's not faith. It doesn't matter how emotional it is, how real it may feel. Actual change needs to take place. That, that's why... In reference to sin, there's such strong language used in Scripture that put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That's violent. Putting anything to death is a violent thing. If you've ever been hunting and killed an animal or something like that, there's violence about that. That's the, that's the approach we should have with sin. Turn to 2 Corinthians. Keep your, well, we'll go back to Psalms. Turn to 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. 2 Corinthians 7, um, 10 through 11 says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what 
eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, and what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. According to that verse, what's the difference between godly grief and worldly grief? Repentance. The difference between godly grief and worldly grief is repentance. And this is where when we talk about engaging the word and knowing that we can truly be transformed by the renewal of our minds, we see that truth, we see godly grief, we we see worldly grief, and what we have to do is take a real honest look at our lives, especially in light of the sermon that was preached on Sunday about blamelessness in 2014 and not being okay with mediocrity and lukewarmness in any area, and we have to say, okay, in this area where, there, where there's a struggle with sin, is it worldly grief or is it godly grief? Because if it's worldly grief, it will lead to death. It's not enough. If it's godly grief, it will lead to repentance, a turning, a change, an actual change because you're trusting in your Lord and his design for your life. And so that's how, you, that's how you apply that. That's how change comes about. That's how transformation happens by the renewal of your mind. Is this godly grief or is this worldly grief? Because if it's worldly grief, there won't be any repentance. And if there's no repentance, there won't be any change. This heaviness, turn back to Psalm 32. That heaviness that's described in chapter four. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Have you ever felt that way in regard to sin? And when you go before the Lord, where you know what his view of sin is, what we're talking about here is trying to see sin the way that God sees sin. And, and he, you, you have this sense of your hand was heavy upon me night and day. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Do you ever get just worn out by your sin? If not, you probably should be. If it's been a while since you had any serious concern about the sin in your own life, we should probably really humbly take a closer look because when you acknowledge that sin, when you go before God according to the Psalm 32 design, humbly you go before him with the sin that you need change from and you say, okay, God, I come before you. I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna try to cover my own transgression. I'm gonna, I'm gonna confess it all to you. There is a heaviness and a weight about that. But what I want us to see in Psalm 32 is that that heaviness was the heaviness that landed on Christ's shoulders on the cross. That, that's why the gospel is considered good news. You don't have to sit there and bear the burden of your own sin because it is an impossibility for you in your fallen state. You need someone who's better than you are, who's perfect, who is without sin, who is flawless, and who is completely all in with God. And you need that person to take that weight upon themselves. And so that weight that we see in Psalm 32.4 is a weight that Christ took upon himself on the cross. If you look at, um, just turn over a little to Psalm 38, 7 through 8. This is again the psalmist talking about this, this weight, this burden from sin. And in Psalm 38, 7 through 8 says... My sides are filled with burning. Think about the cross. Think about the weight that God took upon himself. My sides were filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. That is the sort of feeling we should have in light of the sin in our lives. And Christ took upon himself because of the sins of men, Christ, who never needed to change. He was bowed down. He was brought low. His back was inflicted with searing pain. And God's hand was heavy upon Christ. That's why Christ is called propitiation. The wrath of God that we deserved was poured out on Christ. Propitiation is a wrath absorber. And so the aim of our changing, as we're talking about being a people who are truly spiritual, and that's marked by people who are changing, the aim of our changing is to follow Christ in righteousness. It's not to try and do everything on our own, what Christ did for us. It's to follow him in righteousness, being made more like him in holiness day after day. It's a slow, very tedious process that no one can speed up overnight, made more like him, and really viewing our sin in light of its impact on him, seeing our sin the way that God sees it and thinking about that weight and that burden that we feel from it and knowing that's what he took upon himself. 
truly spiritual people will want to change, and they'll only know or be led to that by considering Christ. The sixth thing is trusting. Um, does anybody in here have trust issues? Okay, fantastic. You probably didn't raise your hand because you weren't sure what I was going to do with that. Um, turn over to uh, Psalm 62. Trust is difficult. It would not be difficult if everyone was trustworthy. So trust is hard because not everyone's trustworthy. And there's only one person who's completely trustworthy. And so it's hard for us when we see people who are so oftentimes not trustworthy, when we even see in ourselves how we can sometimes not be so trustworthy, it's hard for us to consider how perfectly trustworthy God is, but we must consider it nonetheless. We have to consider the Psalms say, you thought I was like you. I'm not like you. I'm altogether different. God wants us to know that he's altogether different, and that is why he's completely worthy of our trust. Look at Psalm 62, verses 1 through 8. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. Just stop there. Is your soul waiting on God? If so, how do you know? What's the indication? And as it waits, is it waiting in silence? Or is it waiting in vexing and fretting and anxiety and frustration and discontentment? For God alone, my soul waits in silence. The truly spiritual person trusts God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take, no, they take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. There's a transition that happens there in verse 5 where he goes from speaking of a soul waiting in silence to counseling his own soul, soul, Wait in silence. Soul, don't vex, don't fret. Soul, wait for your Lord. Anticipate him in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before him, God is a refuge for us. The psalmist urges us to pour out our heart and to release everything else in which we might put our trust and to trust in God alone. I love the pour out your heart part because it allows us to go form and not put on any airs but say, God, I want to put my trust in this. I want to put my trust in this. God, it makes me more comfortable to do this than to do this. But you know what? This is what you say, and I'm putting this all before you. I'm going to pour out my heart before you, and these are the things that are plaguing me. For the psalmist, it was those who were setting themselves against him, evil people who were speaking evil of him, making him like a tottering fence, trying to just, at the right time, just push him over. That's the angst and the, and the frustration and the hardship that the psalmist is going through here. And he's reminding us that God is trustworthy at all times. And because he's trustworthy, we pour out our hearts to him and we put everything before him that we might otherwise put our trust in. Too often we hear about Christianity as being described as getting your life in order and going to God. But again, the reality for all Christians is that true spirituality is about deeply and profoundly giving up on yourself and trusting in God. For those fellow control freaks in the room, that's hard to give up on yourself and completely trust in God to say, you know what, within myself, I have, I have nothing good to offer apart from God. And the things that maybe I reach down deep inside and find that are worth offering only have any worth in Christ and how you've been transformed to his image. So it's difficult for, I think, many of us to say, you know what, I, I, I need to get to the point of giving up on myself what I think I can control, what I think I can do, what I think I can exercise whatever over and put my trust in the Lord and submit to him. It's deep and profound when it happens. These wisdom books also tell us not to rely on our own strength or our own understanding. See, when we're transformed by the renewal of our mind, it's, it's not just that our own, our own understanding increases, it's that we have a new understanding from God. It's his understanding that he's imparting to us and giving to us 
that we might know how he is and who he is and how we move. But to trust God, whose strength is made perfect in our weakness, um, is what we're called to. So we have this weakness, we have this thing, this thing we want to put our trust in something else, and we pour out our hearts before God and we go to him. And what we know, according to 2 Corinthians, which was just before what we looked at earlier, um, is that uh, God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. I, I have struggled with this verse a lot because I view my weakness the way I view my sin. I view my weakness like I view my sin, like put to death sin, put to death weakness. And God says, no, no, no matter how controlled you are, how with it you are, you have weakness. And in that weakness, my strength will be made perfect. So my question is, what do you think that means? God's strength made perfect in our weakness. What, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When we can't do it, we trust him and we find our strength in him. And there's something big that has to happen before we would ever say that. The acknowledgement that we can't do it. I mean, there's a reality check and a sober-mindedness that has to come into play saying, I can't do that. For some of us, that is the, the last word you ever want to hear coming out of our mouth. I can't do that. I'm overwhelmed. I am, uh, I am, I've got, that's too much. Can't handle it. There's so many sitting here tonight that are like, I would never say that out loud. But that's what we're talking about here. What does it mean that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness? What else does that look like? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that pouring out your heart to God. God, I need to care about this, and I don't. I'm frustrated by this thing. I'm done with this thing. Um, I, I don't even care about this, but I submit to your design and I'll obey you. I mean, that can range from anything small that like, you know, it's a sin to know what you should do and not to do it. There's some small things that plague people day in and day out. It can range anything from something like that that's it's seemingly small to your marriage. There's plenty of people that get to a point in their marriage where they're like, man, I don't really care. I don't care anymore. And you need to humble yourself for the Lord and say, that's a weakness, God, and I need your strength to be made perfect in that weakness. It's sort of like the, the very honest prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. That's an honest prayer. You don't have to hide the weakness. You don't have to hide the unbelief. What else do you think it means for God's strength to be made perfect in our weakness? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that's good right there. There's a freedom from that fear that goes along with the weakness and a strength that replaces it. That's that's so good. What else? I want to sit on this, let it simmer a little bit. Yeah. 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 That's it. For, could y'all hear him? He said, if you got a guy who can run and he just, or he can run, he runs fast and he just runs faster, it's like, oh, that's cool. But if you got a guy who can't even walk who ends up running fast, there's something remarkable about that. There's something, I mean, there's something that, Usually those things that will really get attention, honestly, and, and kind of grab, grab our attention and say, we'll say, well, that's remarkable, is when we see God's strength made perfect in the weakness of an individual. It's not, it's sort of a normal thing to say, man, they're really great at that, and they just did that in a great way. It's different to say, I did not expect that. That was remarkable. That was good. And a lot of times it's just our own lives. It's, God, I, I'm aware at how absolutely horrible I am at this thing, and I, maybe it's parenting, Maybe, maybe it's patience. God, I am well aware of my weakness here, and I stink at being patient with my kids. And I just had a conversation with a two-year-old where I was completely patient and didn't lose my cool. Your strength is made perfect in my weakness. And maybe that kind of acknowledgement, day in and day out, that kind of movement. Um, I, think, I think the thing that comes with it is this dependence and an anticipation. 
God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. If we believe that, then there's a dependence upon him in our weakness and an anticipation that his strength will actually come through in it. That, that in the weakness, the thing that you fear, the thing that you don't want people to see, the thing that makes you feel like a liability, like a failure, like an impossibility in that thing, you're, you're eagerly expecting the Lord's strength to be made perfect in it so that you're used for his glory in, in whatever the circumstance might be. It's interesting that in the New Testament, the name for trust is faith. We're talking about trusting God. And sometimes we think of trust as a part of our faith, but the name for trust in the New Testament is faith. Do you see them as inseparable? It's a good question to ask. Do I see trust and faith as inseparable? Or do I say, yes, I have a deep, is there any area of my life where I say, yes, I have a very deep faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior and my treasure, but honestly, I don't trust him at all with this. I don't trust him with this over here. I trust myself with this. I trust my bank with this. I trust whatever with this. Are we really trusting God? Because faith and trust are inseparable. Spurgeon has a quote that I actually shared last semester there toward the end, and I was going to share it tonight. Um, again, I'm, I'm going to try to take some of the these and the thous out of it. So if I stumble, bear with me, because I want it to be really clear. And what he says is this, in regard to trust being interchangeable and inseparable from faith, Spurgeon says, beware, I pray for you, of presuming that you're saved. Now, that is something that you would not hear in like most pulpits. Like, why would you want someone to think that? Why would you want them to question their faith? Why would you want them to think, wait, if, if you're saying that there's a possibility that I'm not saved, then wait, I might not be. And oh my gosh, what do I do with that? No, he's saying, take a sober look at your life in light of reality of trust and faith in God. And he says, beware, I pray for you, of presuming that you're saved. If with your heart you trust in Jesus, you're saved. But if you just say, I trust in Jesus, you're not saved. If your heart is renewed, if you hate the things that you once loved, and if you love the things that you once hated, and if you really have repented, if there's a thorough change of mind in you, if you're born again, then you have reason to, be, to rejoice. But if you just say you're saved, if, if you say you believe in Jesus, and if there's no vital change, no inward godliness, if there's no love to God, if there's no prayer, if there's no work of the Spirit, and you say, I am saved, it's your own assertion. And it may delude, but it will not deliver you. That's a, that's a sober warning from a stout preacher and pastor. Don't just say those things and then not consider how it applies to the everyday movement of your life and how you exercise discretion, how the words that you use, the thoughts that you have, the way you spend your downtime, the way you do your work, all of it is impacted by whether or not you really truly trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior and treasure. Turn to Psalm 131. We're talking about this trust and how it plays out and the, and the spirituality as a characteristic of one who follows Jesus. Psalm 131, it's a very short psalm. And it says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So you can picture this child with this mother where previously, if it wasn't getting exactly what it wanted before it was weaned, it would only do what? Scream. Exactly. Plenty of young moms in here that know that. If that child's not yet weaned and it's with mom and it's eating time and that child's not getting what it wants, that child is not quiet at all. And what he's saying is he, he's come before the Lord 
not too occupied with these things that he can't understand, this loftiness. And that's, that's, a, that's a humility right there. To, to say, God, there's some stuff I don't get. <laughs> there's some stuff I just can't wrap my head around. And when I try, frankly, it just makes me anxious, frustrated, mad, and I question what you're doing. And so he's saying, God, I, I'm not going to occupy my mind with things that are too great. You can occupy your mind with things that are great. But he's, he's humbly saying, quiet before you, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The question would be, have you quieted and calmed your soul in a manner in step with David here? Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book that is probably the, outside of scripture, it's probably the book that's had the most impact on my life, and it's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I've shared about it before. Um, but I, I struggle horribly with discontentment. I mean, if discontentment pops up in one area, I have this magical ability to make it apply to every other area of my life within like a couple minutes. Like discontentment in finances can quickly become discontentment in marriage and parenting and work and what we drive and where we eat. And I mean, it can just, discontentment's ugly. And man, it can, it can rear its head in my life quickly. Something I have to fight against regularly. I know it's a weakness. I know it's there. And I know it deceives me. And what Burroughs writes in his book is, is he talks about this quieted soul. And he, and he explains that we are, um, consider yourself like a, like a shoe. Um, I guess he went there to just really humble us quickly. Um, but he says, you know, some shoes are, are leather and shiny and neat on the outside. It was funny. I, my, this part isn't funny. I preached a funeral over um, the holidays. My grandmother died the day after Christmas. And so I preached that funeral and I came out in a suit. And my daughter, um, who's so used to seeing me in jeans and boots, looks at me in my suit and says, hey, Daddy, I really like your girl's shoes. <laughs> and uh, they were leather and they were shiny and she wasn't used to seeing them, uh, seeing me in them. So, hey, Daddy, I really like your girl's shoes. Thanks, sweetheart. We'll be done in 30 minutes, and I'll put my boots back on. But you consider, you can see this shoe that is shiny, and it's, it's leather, and it looks good on the outside. Uh, but he talks about it inside, it, it pinches the flesh. It's, it's just uncomfortable, and it pinches the flesh. And he says, that's kind of how our souls are, where they have a language that, that only the Lord can hear. And so outside in our lives, everything may look good and shiny and just right, but inside it pinches the flesh and the Lord hears this voice from our soul that is vexing and fretting and discontent. And you may see something and say, that's great. But inside you're saying, it could be a lot better. Man, this is this, I'm pleased with this. I'd be more pleased if it was different. And there's this language of your soul that only the Lord can hear. And he, and he urges you to ask the question, what is the language of your soul that the Lord is hearing? What is he hearing when we know that man looks at the outward appearance and Lord looks at the heart? When he does that, what is he hearing? Is he hearing a genuinely, truly thankful, wholehearted, content person who says one thing and actually sits there and feels it on the inside, who says, you know what, I trust God in every circumstance, but then doesn't have that soul language that says, except for this circumstance, because this stinks, and I wish this was different, and I, I don't even understand. what he, Maybe he's not even God if he can't change this. That happens a lot. But is there that soul language that says, I'm content with any circumstance that he has me in, and I will trust him implicitly no matter what. And then you sit there, and your soul has the same language that he can hear in that circumstance. That's what Jeremiah Burroughs uses to try to explain that. It's not a new problem. I mean, he wrote that book in the 1600s, um, and that's still an issue for people today that, that discontentment creeps in because we're not really trusting God. We haven't quieted and calmed our soul in that manner that David says here, like a weaned child is with its mother. So while David entrusted himself to the Lord, um, Jesus did so even more. You know, in that psalm, you see David entrusting himself to the Lord. And what we're going to end with tonight is Jesus did so even more. Um, and for this, he was mocked. You ever considered that when you think about wanting to trust God only if it goes as you want it to, when Jesus trusted God, he was mocked. When he was on the cross in Matthew 7, they said, he trusted God. Let God deliver him now. That's this mockery. 
He trusted God, and, and bad people were mocking him because he was trusting God. He trusted God. Let God deliver him now, they said, while he was hanging on the cross. So the question would be, shall we not ourselves trust this one who, as it says in Hebrews 5.8, learned to perfectly trust God by what he suffered? Will he not teach us to do the same? In our suffering, we learn to trust God. If you had everything the way you wanted it to, you would have no need to trust God. If everything went exactly as you wished it would, you would have really no need to humble yourself before the Lord and cry out to him. Um, I think it was John Owen that talked about how um, there's a guy who has this sin, and at, the, at that point it was lust, and he said, Lord, just take this lust away from me. I don't want to ever deal with lust ever again. And Owen paints this picture of God saying to him, if I take that from you, I'll never hear from you again. There's a dependence that is caused through our hardship and through our trial that allows us to grow and how much we really trust God. And I mean, that's no light thing because some of y'all have gone through some really hard stuff. I mean, really hard stuff. God's saying through that, no matter how hard it is, you gotta know I have a purpose. You gotta know that nothing separates you from my love. That in that thing, you're more than a conqueror through me as I show my love to you. And we learn to trust him in any and every circumstance, quieting our souls like a weaned child with its mother. Next week, we'll talk about Thanksgiving, and we'll probably take a closer look at one psalm uh, in particular. Um, I just want to encourage you all to, as we hear Scripture and as we look at these things, you know, especially when we're talking about spirituality, it's so easy to trick ourselves into thinking we're doing something spiritual or acting spiritual or being spiritual. And one of my prayers for us is just honesty. Honesty with ourselves, honesty with our Lord, honesty with our spouses, honesty with our friends, honesty with our children, an honesty that, that hopefully creates an environment where these kinds of characteristics can, can really exist in a very humble way. I think that's really pleasing to the Lord, and I, and I, I genuinely think that's where we'll find um, our greatest joy. So let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we love you very much. We thank you for, for being a trustworthy God. Um, Lord, even, even as I'm teaching, I'm thinking there are at least a handful of issues that I need to spend time humbling myself before you, not trying to cover my own transgression, pouring my heart out before you, eager for you to change me, expecting that I could be transformed spending some time feeling the weight of my own sin. And I pray for an honesty like that um, to exist in each of us, that we can move forward in a way where you're glorified and you're honored and, uh, and we are humbled and made and conformed into the image of Christ. Lord, I'm thankful for um, everyone who's here tonight and the opportunity we've had in the scripture. And we're thankful for Christ who makes all of this worthwhile. And we're thankful, Lord, that as we look at these things, you tell us to think over them, to think over them, and you will give us understanding. So as we leave here, we pray that you would give us understanding as we think over these things. We love you and we humble ourselves before you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.